Welcome to Scene Change, a podcast by the National Federation of the Blind's Performing Arts Division. All about equality, opportunity, accessibility, and the arts. Here, you'll learn adaptive techniques from performers in the know. We are changing what it means to be blind, one stage at a time. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scene Change, where we do our part to influence the future of accessibility and the performing arts. I'm Lizzie Mohammed Park, the Vice President of the National Federation of the Blind Performing Arts Division, and your host of the show. We've been on a winning streak um, with our recent interviews. Um, they've all been very, very great. And today we are so fortunate to have another professional award-winning singer, songwriter, radio personality, TV personality, guitarist, and sound engineer. I think I got them all. Joey Stuckey. Welcome to the show, Joey. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> We are so glad to have you here today. Um, in my research, I've uh, learned that you are quite the artist. Your musical background is very eclectic. How would you describe yourself as a musician? And then outside of that, how would you describe yourself as a person? Well, musically, um, I, I'm just so inspired by sound and I just love music so much that I really hate um, being pigeonholed uh, as an artist. And, and as an artist, what you want to do is create. And the goal is to communicate at the, at our essence, you know, arts about communication, whether it's painting, dance, music, sculpting, writing, you know, whatever kind of artistic expression is. I mean, at the end of the day, we're communicators primarily. And so I like to feel like I have the freedom to create any genre or style of music that that communicates my message that being said um you do have to also understand who you are and you have to define who you are and then you have to do that because you have to define who wants to listen to or or consume your arts so you've got to have somebody you know you can make the greatest art in the world but if nobody knows about it you're not going to be able to make that sustainable so um, my, my style is, is very eclectic. You're right. I kind of feel like I'm a Renaissance man in the sense that, you know, I love so many different things and I love so many different art forms. I love so many different kinds of music. And I, I just, I'm just inspired by sound, whether it's classical, which is where my background, I started playing classical when I was about 17. Um, and I still, you know, have uh, fingernails on my right hand for the classical guitar, even though I don't really play classical music much anymore. Um, but, but I mean, I, I just, I just really love jazz. I love country. I love hip hop. I love heavy metal. I love reggae. I mean, I, I, I like it all. What I've done in recent years is to sort of redefine. I have a couple of different groups that I run. So I have a, a sort of a solo acoustic singer songwriter thing that I do. Um, by myself. And then I have sort of my rock blues um, trio. Our, our music's a little bit more eclectic than that. We, we've made up a title called Progressive Americana, Americana being a broad umbrella uh, for country and blues and folk music and things of that nature. Um, and progressive usually denotes uh, elements of, uh, you know, heavy rock and jazz um, people call it progressive rock. Um, and so we call it progressive Americana, which is just something we totally made up. And then I've got a, a full on, you know, jazz trio that does fusion and bebop and all these kind of things. So 
Um, I do a lot of different things, but I've, I've sort of, to answer kind of part two of your question and conclude part one, as a person, I broad my, brand myself fairly broadly, and I have sort of a broad, uh, you know, brand. But uh, what I've done is I define myself very broadly, and then I define each album that I create, so each sort of work of art that I create very specifically and very narrowly so that people can find it. And, you know, as a person, I just, I'm excited to share my story, my life with people. And music is the primary vehicle through which I do that. But I mean, I also do a lot of inspirational talks and uh, I do a lot of music business um, master classes and recording master classes. And I teach at the university level uh, music technology for a couple of universities here in town. So I do a lot of different things. And at the end of the day, I just, I really just want to leave the world a little better than I found it. That's kind of my overall mission and um so that's i mean that, that's a little bit about kind of <laughs> kind of the the weird universe that is me <laughs> that's a great mission to have especially um as an artist um specifically as an artist with a disability uh because you know you want to leave the world better than you found it and you know too often people assume that uh we are people who need to be served and that we cannot serve others. So I really love that mission. Um, and I, I commend you for uh, taking it on and um, really, you know, committing to that, committing to that passion. Now, I understand that um, part of this may have come from the way you were raised. Uh, your parents really seem to have raised you with a, as we say in the NFB, take charge with confidence kind of attitude. So my question is, where do you think they got it from? Um, you know, because it's, it's That's rare. a great question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, th- that is a beautiful question because my mom and my dad both, I mean, they were very, I don't know how to say it, just really ahead of their time. You know, now there's a lot of uh, science and research about uh, helping children and things like that, but they really did things at a time when uh, that wasn't done. My, my, um, blindness and the other health challenges I face come from a brain tumor. And so, um, you know, when, when these days uh, they can go in and just have a very small incision uh, to remove the type of brain tumor I had, but, but by back in the mid seventies, when I had mine, uh, it was still kind of the dark ages of that kind of surgery. And in fact, the very first doctor told my parents that, that, you know, uh, they do the surgery, but there wasn't really any point um, because I wasn't going to make it. And my parents said, okay, well, you're not doing the surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and so the, the, the second doctor was a little bit more positive. They, they basically said, look, if we don't operate, we know your son's going to die. If we do operate, there's a high probability that he will not survive the surgery and if he does survive the surgery, he may not ever walk or talk. Um, but my parents said, well, we're going we're gonna to do the very best thing based on the information we have. And we're going to do the very best thing that we can to give our son the best chance for survival. But not only survival, because really, in my mind, I don't know what my parents were thinking at that moment. But in, in my mind, survival is not sufficient. Um, survival is, is important and it's something to be fought for. Don't get me wrong, 
but there also has to be a greater purpose. Uh, I want to, I want to survive. Yes. But I want to have a life of meaning and a life of intention is what I like to call it. So, um, that's, they, they, they did the surgery and they told my parents, look, if they, if they come out in less than eight or nine hours, you need to be prepared that it's not good news. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came in, came out in about three hours. And, uh, the doctor said that he felt like, um, that he didn't really have a good explanation, but he just felt like a higher power took hold of his hands and lifted the tumor up. And, um, the damage was done by the tumor, not by the surgery, but by the tumor, because it was basically blowing up you think about it it was it was expanding at such a fast rate but it sort of crushed all the wiring uh inside the brain it destroyed my optic nerves it destroyed my sense of spell my (laughs) sense of smell um (laughs) it destroyed my endocrine system so i don't i don't have good adrenal functions and other stuff like that gave me some issue with my bones um but you know we got it done and we did the best we could i spent about um, three between three and four months in the icu afterwards and it's been a struggle ever since but my parents man I don't know. They were just ahead of their time. They they always found a way to keep me focused on what was possible instead of what wasn't possible and always kept me focused on affirmation over fear. And uh, it, it's I, I don't know how they came up with that. I really don't. I mean, my my dad um, was the first person in his family to go to college. Um, he grew up cutting down trees in a swamp in Georgia. That's that's you know what they did. They they owned you know uh, some farms and stuff like that. So he had a very rural background. My mom was the daughter of a Baptist preacher, um, and uh, they they just loved me and loved life and knew that whatever was thrown at them and whatever they had to do to make sure I had the most fulfilling life I could is what they would do some way, one way or another. It's amazing to me. And my mom, when she found out she was pregnant with me, you know, nowadays people talk about this all the time, but back then they, they didn't, she used to play like bird sound effects um, and classical music and stuff. And a lot of people go, Oh, now, now, now that's kind of a popular thing. Oh, play even before the child's born, play a lot of soothing, you know, classical music and, and stuff like that. And music was always a big part of our house, how we celebrated and how we, we uh, comforted ourselves. And so, um, you know, I was surrounded by love and I was surrounded by positivity and surrounded by music. So I don't, I don't know how they had such a, such a brilliant way of helping me focus in a manner that was positive and, and, and in making sure that I felt honestly, if anything, they probably did too good a job making me feel like I could do anything Um, because I decided that um, when I was, uh, oh, I guess I was maybe 11. uh, A lot of kids at school were um, swinging real high and then jumping out of the swings, you know, to land on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I told my mom, I was like, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, when to jump. And she's like, oh, well, we can figure that out. Um, Let's, let's do that. And so I tried it and broke my arm. So uh, (laughs) under my, under my parents' supervision, um, you know, um, a lot of blind people don't ride uh, bicycles and stuff like that. Obviously, you can't see where you're going. Not the best idea in the world. Um, I, I had a three-wheeled bike and gave that a shot and knocked out two of my front teeth. Um, but, you know, I, I had the experience. I, I'm not, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I, I, le- I learned my lesson. Um, but, but, I mean, I've had the experience. And when I was in college, I mean, I thought, Oh, I can, I can do, uh, I can be a conductor just because I can't see doesn't mean I can't be a conductor. Um, and of course 
you know, one of the most important things in conducting is eye contact. That's not going to happen. And, uh, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, you have to memorize this massive score. And if, you know, and, and if you are trying to read Braille music and conduct, that is not going to work because you have to use both hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't read Braille music and conduct at the same time. So I tried that class. I got a B. Um, I worked my butt off. I, mm-hmm. I worked so hard in that class. It's the hardest, it's probably the hardest I've ever worked for a grade in my life. And I, I made it. Um, but I am a terrible conductor. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am what you call low sided adequate. And uh, <laughs> the thing is, I got that experience and my parents were really big on giving me experiences. Yeah. I went to school. I went to college. I did all those things. But they made sure to give me lots of experiences and lots of just different ways to experience the world. Like just because I was blind, we still went to the circus. Um, I couldn't see the circus, but I was able to feel the energy of the crowd. I was able to enjoy the music. Um, So my parents never, they never told me that I couldn't do something. But at the same time, they always made sure that I had a, a realistic grasp of what was possible and what was reasonable um, and, and, you know, never put myself in danger or never put myself in a position of trying to do something that's just, you know, not, not in the realm of reality, but, but within those parameters, man, you know, they let me do a lot of different things and, and help me to explore the universe, explore the world. Now you said something just a moment ago and it sparked a question that I had originally planned for later, but I'm going to bump it up to the top. Um, what did you say? It was something about um, going for anything and your parents, you know, essentially encouraging you to do everything within reality. Now, where did the inspiration for your song, let me get the name of it, right? Is it Blind Man Driving? Right, right. Where did the inspiration for that come from? (laughs) Well, so so because we're here in the South, uh, I'm I'm here in in the in the Southern Rock capital of the world, Macon, Georgia, and uh, so we 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 spell it. We we always say the blind man driving, so we put the apostrophe at the end. But um, that is a song that's about. um, Well, first of all, it had it has two purposes. Um, The first purpose is it's a kind of fun play on words because the hook of the song is loving you is like a blind man driver. And, and that just means it's a terrible idea. Uh, you know, <laughs> blind man drive is a terrible idea and, and loving this particular person is a terrible idea. And so that's kind of the, the, the hook of it. But I like to, I really want to teach people that blind is not a dirty word. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I want people to know that the word blind is not synonymous with some kind of insult. Um, I am intelligent enough to know if I'm being insulted or not. And while I certainly appreciate people being sensitive to my feelings, and I do, um, you can call me visually impaired if you want. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Some people prefer it. I don't really care what you call me as long as it's in in a loving way. So um, you can say blind. You can say visually impaired. You can say visually challenged. Honestly, the most accurate way to state my visual condition is blind. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not like I can see to read or can wear glasses or, you know, to me, that's more visually impaired or whatever. But I just wanted people to know, you know, if, if you're not comfortable in your own skin, then no one can be comfortable around you. Um, you, have to, you have to know who you are. 
You have to love yourself because until you do that, um, you just, you just, you know, are, you're just harder to, um, you're harder to interface with. It's, it's, it's harder to be accessible uh, if you don't have those things. And so I remember that I was talking at a school and a young lady came up to me and said um, that she had been in a wheelchair for 17 years and that the people at the school didn't treat her well, that she had experienced some bullying. And I've experienced some bullying when I was in, you know, uh, grammar school and stuff like that as well. And uh, but she said, people just don't like me. And I said, well, we can't control other people. The only thing you can control is yourself. And my question for you is, do you love yourself? Do you believe that you are a, a, a unique creation, that you are special and worth love? And you know, do you believe that? Because if you don't believe that, if you feel awkward, if you feel shy, if you feel, um, if you feel uncomfortable with who you are, then nobody else can be comfortable with who you are because we send out all kinds of messages on a daily basis. The way you hold your head, the way you hold your arms and hands, your posture, the way you walk, the way your voice sounds, the clothes you choose to wear, all these things send out signals and people really can't help it in my opinion, but we, we form instant, our brains like a puzzle and our brains like to connect the dots. And even when we're not aware of it, sometimes we're making judgments and we're not aware of it. And so, you know, if you send out signals that you're not approachable, um, that's going to complicate things for you. So it's really important to be open and feel approachable and feel comfortable in who you are. And I'm totally comfortable talking about being blind. I'm totally comfortable about talking about being overweight. <laughs> I'm totally comfortable about uh, talking about being a musician. I'm, you know, I, I, I am not a perfect being. That's something I work on. Um, but I am worth of love and, and I am, I am someone that loves and, you know, and, and so, you know, I, I just, I really think about that. So blind man driving, especially the video that goes with it. Is, which is hilarious uh, by the way. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's really about saying it's okay. Sometimes being blind is funny. Um, and it's okay to laugh. It's okay to laugh. Sometimes it's funny. I mean, I've got lots of stories about scrapes I got into because I couldn't see what I was doing and, you know, something silly happened. So sometimes it's funny. I just want people to know it's okay to laugh. It's okay to say the word blind. Uh, so that's really kind of the greater message of blind man driving for me anyway, is, is to break down any kind of barrier of awkwardness or, or shyness um, by, by saying, Hey, I can laugh myself and you can laugh at me too. Now that does not mean that I think that people should be insensitive. That doesn't mean that I think people should be cruel. Um, mm -hmm. or, or should, in fact, I just, I was in, I'm in a, one of these private Facebook groups that have full of musicians. And, um, I recently posted an article, um, on a website about, uh, how to stay healthy in the entertainment business because the entertainment business has a very weird schedule. It's not a nine to five job mm -hmm. and it's real hard to stay healthy. Uh, I'm talking about mental health. I'm talking about physical health, um, spiritual health. It's real difficult. So I wrote an article about it and somebody posted a really nasty comment about saying that I was overweight and said that, uh, you know, when you lose some weight, get back to me about being healthy. Um, had they bothered to read the article, uh, instead of just looking at the picture and, and making that snap, I'm, 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 uh, 
I'm sort of make whitewashing it a bit. I mean, it's, it was a lot ruder than that, but, mm-hmm. uh, but, 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 but I had to bother to read the article. They would have, they would have noticed that I talked about during COVID I've lost 85 pounds and, oh, wow. uh, and, 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 and that was one of the things I did to stay positive during COVID was to find a way to improve my life while I had a little extra time. And so, um, so anyway, but so I'm not in any way saying that people shouldn't be sensitive to other people's feelings or anything like that. I'm just saying that for us to maximize the opportunity to make friends and to make a positive impact, we've got to start with ourselves and love ourselves first. So that's a lot about, you know, blind man driving to me encapsulates that entire philosophy of it's okay to laugh. It's okay to talk about things that are uncomfortable. And it's especially important for um, adults um, to, to have conversations if they don't understand what it's like to be blind or they, and, and they, they want to know. I'd rather them ask me a question than feel uncomfortable because if adults can't handle it, children sure can't handle it. And you know what? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You, go you ahead. That's it. I, that, no, you got it. No, I, I, I find it interesting actually what you just said. I actually find that children can handle it better than adults. I find that adults are the ones who stifle the children. If you ever think about it, right? Well, kids, that's a good, go that's a good point. Yeah, no, go ahead. Saying, that, that's what a good say? point because because you're right. I mean, there's there's I think I think it's a I think it's a double edged sword. I mean, you're right. In a lot of ways, children don't care mm-hmm. about some things that adults care about, and they don't they don't even notice. It. Yeah. Um, so, so, but then, then again, you know, then, then again, I, so I have had that experience where kids are like, they don't even like, well, no big deal. Um, mm-hmm. but then I've also had instances where, um, because I was different, um, and because they couldn't understand me, there was some, there was some hostility from children as well. So, I mean, I've, I've seen it both ways, but you're right. But I, I think, I guess my better point, um, to, would be that the, the, the adults need to lead by, by Example. knowing how to. Yeah, mm-hmm. by setting an example, and and if and if you know they need to understand um, how to make how to if the children do have questions, um, how to how to handle that. One of the great experiences for me, I was in Chicago on tour um, playing, and uh, I had gone to um, the Cloudgate Park, um, which they have this. There's this huge sculpture that locals call the Bean. I think its mm-hmm. actual name is the Cloudgate, but it's. <laughs> It's, it's this giant bean-shaped sculpture, and, and it reflects the skyline. So you can come and get these pictures of you in Chicago with, with the skyline behind you. And it doesn't, it's, this, it's this really huge piece of artwork. And I was over there um, walking underneath it and listening to the acoustics of it, when you could go underneath it and just kind of clapping my hands and kind of listening to it and feeling it, feeling the surface and how smooth it was and all this kind of stuff. And there was a little child that uh, the, they didn't realize I could hear them. Um, and, uh, but I have, my hearing's pretty acute. So um, they didn't realize I could hear them. And the little child was, uh, he must've been four, maybe five. And he's, he was asking his mom, like, why is that man <laughs> groping the statue? You know, <laughs> why, why, what is, what's happening? And his mother said, well, he can't see. And that's the way he's experiencing the statue. And, and, and uh, she did a really good job of explaining that. It was a beautiful thing. Um, and uh, I did not intrude on, on their moment, uh, but I was really pleased to hear how beautifully she handled it. And, and again, she handled it like it was no big deal. There was you know, nothing to see here kind of thing. But, but she was answering all the questions, but answered them so beautifully. So that's, that's, that, I don't know who that lady was, but I, I thought, wow, that's a mom that's got it going on.
Mm-hmm. Shout out to her. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think that um, things are definitely getting better, especially with social media, um, because people are more exposed to things that other they would have they would not have otherwise interacted with or learned about. Um, That's true. So I do wonder, like, if that is part of it. I, I think I'm, you know, I'm seeing that more and more as well um, in, in different travels and different things that I'm doing is that people are a lot more aware and able to explain things to their kids. But I think you're exactly right about all of it. Um, even back, you know, and with your answer to the first question with you have to know who you are before you can tell your audience who you are, you know, like you have yeah. to, you have to first be comfortable with yourself. And um, I think that's a huge part of, uh, of performing and being a performer. There's nothing worse than an uncomfortable performer. That's gotta be like, that's just awkward to watch. You know, yeah, so. and, and you, you, you hurt for that person when you when you when you see an someone that feels awkward. And that's what I tell my yeah. students and my clients. Look, I'm, I'm a bantery kind of guy. I, I make a lot of stupid jokes. I, I talk to the audience. I tell stories. That's my that is just a natural extension of who I am. So for me on stage, that's very comfortable. I'm comfortable with one person. I'm comfortable with 10,000. I don't care. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's no it really isn't different for me. But if that's not your thing, that's totally cool. Just do you. I, I saw a, a, a video the other night. I say saw, of course, but you just using the common vernacular. Of um, <laughs> but um, I was watching a video the other night at, at, a, at a, a club um, in uh, in California where we played, which is a, the world famous Whiskey A Go Go, and they mm. were having a live stream, and they had a band on there that was trying to sort of like banter, and it was painful because <laughs> they were they were they were really awkward. They felt uncomfortable. And wow, just, you know, do you, if you're not, if you don't talk to the audience and that's not your thing, just, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Just do, you know, be you. Um, So, but I think, you know, we talk about space, the final frontier, right? I think self-discovery is really the final frontier. I think it's a really worthy pastime and it's a real introspection. I'm, 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 as you can tell, I'm an extrovert, (laughs) you know, um, I just am. And I'm a hugger and I like to hug people and I, that's just how I am. But I mean, I, I spend, you know, maybe 45 minutes a day um, thinking about things at a very deep philosophical introspective level and asking myself questions. And, uh, and I think that's really important because it, it informs, you know, it informs everything I do from business to art, to human relations, um, you know, all these things um, to, to speaking uh, as an inspirational speaker and that sort of stuff. I mean, it just, it's really important to know yourself and, and, uh, you know, you change over time, so that's okay, too. So, but but uh, just spending a little time to get to know yourself is a worthy, a, a real worthy pursuit in my mind. Yeah, I would say it's, it, it should be at the top of everyone's list because, I mean, we've been, you know, sort of saying this, but if you don't know who you are, where are you going? What are you doing? You know what I mean? What, you know, you, you always, yeah. you have to know yourself first. Yeah, and you have to know who you are deep down on the inside, not just who you want to be as a performer. And I feel like they can be different people, which is why I asked you that question at first, which was, who are you as a musician and who are you as a person? Because I think it's possible to yeah. be two different people. You know what I mean? As long as you're comfortable with those Absolutely. people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, we are, we are, we are multi, multifaceted beings, not just one thing. And for sure. Uh, but I think for me though, I mean, honestly, I'm really, and my wife will tell you this, I am no different I'm, I'm slightly more amped up on stage, but I'm really no different um, sitting here talking to you than I am on a stage somewhere. I just, there's it's a little bit, I'm a little bit 
a little bit more energetic uh, because mm-hmm. you're, you're playing music and you're, you know, you're doing all these things that yeah. are physical and you, and so that, that amps you up a little bit, but it's not, it's not like a totally different situation. I will say this though. I do believe in cloaking yourself with authority um, when you are an expert in your craft and you want to go out and execute that craft, I do think you have to have a mantle of authority. So when we go on stage, we do believe that we're talented. We do believe that we're going yeah. to give you an amazing time. And it's not an arrogance. It's a confidence. Yeah. And then when the show's over, that that all falls away. And it's time to be humble and grateful. And mm-hmm. so I, I but I do believe you've got to have even if you have to fake it at first. You've mm-hmm. got to have confidence. Without it, you just cannot be successful. I mean, you just you just cannot. Um, and you've got to go out and 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 you've got to go out and, and for me, we're doing a show, so you've got to go out and sell that show. You got to go out and make that performance entertaining. You got to make it uh, in, you know impactful from a, a a spiritual level. You've got to you know entertain, inform, enlighten. Um, but but if you don't believe in you know, and that's the other reason you should be yourself, and that you should discover who you are because you need to believe in what you're selling. Um, if, if I don't, if I don't believe in my music, why should you, <laughs> I mm. mean, you know, mm. it's so, true, but, but I, I also want to say, you know, I do talk about a lot about knowing yourself, but it's also okay to admit that you don't know yourself and realize that it's a journey and not a destination. So it's okay. You, you should be excited to explore that because you're going to find out all kinds of interesting things and talents you didn't even know you had. And, and I think, so, I mean, if, if someone's listening right now, go, gosh, I don't know who I am. That's cool. That's okay. Um, but start the exploration so that you can make more informed, more intentional choices for your life. And you're just going to be a lot happier. I totally agree with that. Um, and, and, and I would even add that if you don't know yourself, that is the first step to self-discovery. That's the, the first step to getting to know yes. yourself is, is knowing when you don't know yourself. Because if <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> so Absolutely. I'm going to ask you this no, then. I think that's brilliant. I think, go ahead. I, I was going to say, and, and finish off what you were saying, but I was going to say, how does someone start, how does someone, uh, in your opinion, start getting to know, to know themselves? For the listeners who don't know themselves, how, what, what's something that they can do to start getting to know themselves? Well, I think, I think for me, you know, one of the things you have to do is, is be brave sometimes. And being brave is not the absence of fear. Being brave is being afraid, but moving forward anyway. So I think, you know, if you look at the people that are most successful in whatever field you want to pick, whether it's engineering, science, you know, politics, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know, these people believed in something so much and were so motivated and inspired by something that they took chances where maybe, uh, uh, you know, you got to have a little bit of that take a chance attitude. I, I, I'm all about plans. I don't think winging it is a plan. So I don't believe in that. I believe in I believe in planning. I believe in, in careful strategic thought processes and all that kind of stuff. But I also believe in taking a leap of faith. And I like this sort of quasi, um, sort of quasi Buddhist statement that says, "Leap and the net will appear." So I kind of, I kind of believe in that. I also believe in in, this, in the the idea that success is when opportunity and preparation meet. So I mm-hmm. like, I like the idea that you you have to go out on faith, but that faith is based on the fact that you are 
really, to be honest, obsessed with something. Something that you're going to be good at is something you're obsessed with, something that doesn't feel like you're working when you're doing it, something that no matter what time of day it is, no matter what else is going on, you're still excited about. And those are the things that you should focus on. I think to be a well-rounded person, you should be exposed to lots of different things. But you don't have to be good at all those things. Like I, for example, am a terrible bowler. I am the worst. I mean, gut balls all day long. But it, it, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I mean, I'm not a good at bowling. So what? That doesn't mean that I won't go bowling with my friends if that's where they want to go. If my if my friends want to say, "Hey, you guys want to go out bowling?" Yeah, I'll come. I'll come be last. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't feel compelled to have to be good at everything I do to enjoy it. You know, I can enjoy the camaraderie. You can enjoy jokes at my expense if you want to. Um, you know, and, and I'm a terrible golfer. I go out and golf too. I'm, I'm abysmal. Um, but if somebody wants to do it and, you know, hey, uh, we'll do it. So, you know, I was just saying that my idea is that exploring the universe around you until you find that thing that really motivates you and that thing that really defines you. And for me, music's a big part of what defines me, but it's not a vocation for me. It's not a career for me. It's, it's not a hobby. It's, it's, it's really, to be candid, it's an obsession. And it, it is just a natural extension of my spirit. It's, it's what I live for outside of my friends and family. It is just the thing that motivates me. I mean, I, I wake up in the morning, and my, I have two favorite things that I do the first thing in the morning. One thing, I get my cup of coffee and make that. And that's, that's fun. And then I go and find this particular spot in my house where I can hear the birds chirping. And that's how I wake up every day because they are musical. So everything, you know, sound and music is just such a huge part of my spirit and, and just excites me every day. It doesn't matter if I've had a bad day, I mean, it always still motivates me, even, even days that are hard in the music business. And there's a lot of those. Um, I still go home thankful that I'm able to do it. So, you know, you can go out and find that thing. That's a natural extension of who you are that inspires you every single time, no matter what's going on. And I think that's a perfect way to start your journey of self-discovery and to start finding the, the way you want to make a difference, the way you want to live a life of intention and purpose is finding that thing. Again, for me, it's music. For you, it might be who knows what. Uh, you know, maybe it is bowling <laughs> for, for some of you out there. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's a great blind bowler out there somewhere. Um, I just don't happen to be that. Yeah, I love that because you're not saying that, you know, you're not good at all these things because you're blind. You're just not good at all these things because no one's good at everything. And no. I think that people who feel the need to be good at everything, I think that's a sign of like insecurity. I think that when you truly are confident, you can recognize your strengths and your weaknesses. And we all have them. So oh, gosh, yeah. And you know, that, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm all about I'm all about letting every part of me work for me. And what I mean by that is that even my flaws can serve a purpose. Maybe they serve an educational purpose. They help teach me things that I don't want to do or things I shouldn't do or, or things like that. But for example, I'm not a very, I'm not patient with myself. Uh, I'm patient with other people, but I'm not patient with myself. That's, that's a problem. But my impatience works to my advantage because it, in one way, because it means that I get things done ahead of time that I am, I am always exceeding 
um, people's expectations. When they give me a timeline, I always get it done early. And I'm always mm. the first, I'm always the first person there. I'm always the last person to leave. Um, because, because I have that real, you know, impatience to, to, to move forward and to get things done. And so even that I try to let work for me, but I think that failure is not a bad word either. I think failure is okay too. In fact, I think it serves just as valid a place as success when it comes to teaching you who you are and what things you want to do and what things you don't want to do. Um, so that's cool. And, I, and again, yeah, I, I just happen not to be um, good at bowling or golf. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's cool. And like people, sometimes people will ask me questions. You know, I teach, I, I teach these master classes in music theory and I teach master classes in, in improvisation. And I teach, you know, master classes in um, music technology and, all, and music business and all this stuff. And sometimes someone will ask me a question and I can honestly and without shame say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll do my best to help you find out. Um, so I, I do not feel compelled at all to feel like I have to know everything or have to be good at everything. And I think you're totally right. I mean, it, it's, it's insecurities that tend to make people want to pretend um, that they are other than what they are. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, whether that manifests as trying to you know, feel like they have to know everything or, or whatever. And I don't think that's particularly healthy, but, you know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Now, you said something a minute ago. Um, you like to get things done early. I do. And I read that you graduated high school at, what, 14 or something like that? That is after true. Being, after being homeschooled. Yeah. Now, is that, does that play into, have you had this get it done early mindset? since then or yeah you know I, I don't know how many people have listened to the musical hamilton um uh, it, it's one of my okay <laughs> I, I think i, I kind of feel like that's the truth it's one of my favorite things and there's a wonderful line that in, in hamilton that says why are you writing like you're running out of time mm. um i will admit to you that i have always been a bit concerned in the very deep deep recesses of my psyche about running out of time um, when you've almost died a couple times, that is something that becomes, you know, uh, part of the reality you have to cope with, that you've been near death several times and that there's no guarantee of a tomorrow. And um, I don't say that in a dismal way or in a, in a sad way, but I do have to admit that it's a little bit of the drive that I have because I have so many things that I want to accomplish before my time's up. And, um, so there, there's part of that. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I almost died, you know, most of my significant illnesses were as a child. Um, so there was, there was some of that and there were days where I couldn't go and be with my friends that I was too sick. Um, there were some really exciting opportunities that I had to miss. My dad was very involved in politics and we had a chance to go and watch Bill Nelson, um, uh, be, who was a Senator who was, uh, on a, one of the space shuttle missions back in the eighties we have a chance to go and watch him launch into space from mission control at Cape Canaveral, but I was too sick to go. Um, and, and that was a, being a, a space enthusiast um, and a science enthusiast, that was a, a real bummer for a you know, kid. Um, so there's some of that. Um, there's some of that there. There's also the, the fact that when I feel good, I feel good, but there are times when, when my physical limitations do get the better of me. They're not often, uh, because my willpower is so strong and I usually just push through. But every once in a while, um, you know, because I don't have normal adrenal function, uh, there are days 
you know, the, with, with chronic fatigue and stuff like that, they'll just get the better of me. So yeah, I, I, I always had, I've always had a little bit of that. Let's, I love to get things done. Cause then I can move on to something else exciting. Um, but when I was, when I was a child, um, I, I, a lot of it was, um, I was really more focused on survival than any kind of deep philosophical uh, bent as a kid. So what happened, the, the reason that um, I graduated so early was that the high school I was going to, um, I had to be homeschooled for that summer prior to graduation. Uh, that, that I guess it was maybe about six months. It was maybe summer and fall. I had to be homeschooled because I had been really sick with pneumonia. The medicine they gave me to help cure that made me start throwing up blood, which was pretty, pretty, uh, <laughs> let's just say what fun. Uh, and, and, and it was dangerous. And, um, but, but I had already taken, because I had such accelerated, I've always had good comprehension skills and I've always placed in the 98th to 99th percentile in my SATs and stuff like that. So I had a really active mind. I still have a very active mind and a very active brain. And I just processed information and just chewed it up really fast and remembered what I was told. And so I had just, I had done everything that the school could offer me. I'd taken all the classes that required. I even took two uh, college classes uh, that, that they offered. Uh, and then they said, look, you, you've done everything we can do. You got to go. <laughs> you gotta go. It's, time, it's time to move on. So that's, that's kind of how that happened. But um, I just always was reading ahead. I was always ahead of people in class. You know, it just, just, I just I was always uh, very active and I read a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I do know Braille. I'm not a, I'm not a speed reader. I'm very clumsy with Braille to be honest, because I didn't learn it till I was about 12 or 13 years old. Oh. And, and uh, cause no one in my area taught it. Yeah. Um, and, and the closest person was like 400 miles away. So mm -hmm. we, we, we didn't do that. But finally, when I was about 13 years old, there was, there was a, a lady that, that taught it at one of the local schools and she was incredible. She actually read it with her eyes. She just, you know, she knew how to, to sight read it. Um, and she taught me, but I'm, I'm clumsy and I didn't really spend a lot of time with it because, uh, I think if you've kind of figured out if it, if it doesn't work, um, if it doesn't work for me, then I move on to what does work for me. And, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't like the books. They were huge. <laughs> they were, yeah, I, <laughs> I was like, I'd rather listen. I'd rather, I'd rather use tapes. And, you know, I speed listen even now I have, you, I'm sure you do too. I have jaws and voiceover and all mm -hmm. the screen readers cranked up at a really high speed. <laughs> um, you know, pe people come into the studio and they hear this little voice background like, blah, 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 like that. Yep. And they're like, like, Hey, <laughs> my favorite one is this guy goes, Hey, is that Cantonese? I'm, like, I, I'm glad you think I speak Cantonese and I'm that kind of guy, but uh, it, it's, it's English. If anything, it's Creole. Uh, but, but yeah, so I mean, you know, as a kid, um, I always listened and, you know, I was very, very sick. And so I was reading books. Uh, I was reading like Canterbury Tales and stuff when I was in first grade, second grade. Oh, I, I was reading, I was reading things like uh, I read something called Goodman and Gilman's A Pharmacological Basis of Therapeutics when I was about eight because I wanted to understand why I was taking so much medicine, how mm. medicine worked, how it had an effect on my body. So, um, you know, and my, my wife and I, when we were first married, we'll be married uh, 18 years this June. Oh, wow. And yeah. And, and, and when we were first married, she said the, the first month or two, she, she said, you know, I, I started thinking that you just didn't weren't listening to me that I'd, I'd say something to you 
and ask you a question, like ask your opinion on something, and you just go, oh, no, 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 that's my opinion. And she'd say, God, he didn't even think about what I asked him. And then she, <laughs> she, she'd chew on it for a couple of days and she'd come back and go, oh, I reached the same conclusion, but I had to think about it a couple of days. And I said, well, honey, I, I don't do that. I, I analyze the information I have. And if there's no other information that's forthcoming, I make a decision. That is part of that. You're going to die if we don't take the brain tumor out. You may die if we do we got to get this done and just do the best we can do and move on. That's just, mm -hmm. that's part of my makeup. So I, you know, I don't agonize over decisions. Um, you know, I, I just, I analyze the information I have. If I have more information that's going to be coming to me in the future, then I'll wait and I'll, I'll wait till I get that information. But if, if there's no other information coming, there's no point agonizing for five, six days over a question. That's not going to, the information's not changing. Uh, so I don't do that. <laughs> I just sort of, well, here's, here's the best decision I can make based on the information I have. Let's get on with it. That makes sense. And that actually, um, I'm sure makes you a better leader because you're so decisive. You know what I mean? People yeah. don't have to, you know, well, you're never going to wonder what I'm thinking or what I expect, um, <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, and, and again, I do it with love and kindness, but, mm -hmm. um, but you have to be on. I, I just really believe in honesty. I think it is the absolute critical component to living a life that you're proud of. And just you just need to tell the truth. You, you can tell it in a way that's not hostile. You can tell it in a way that's not rude. I'm not for being rude to people. There are a lot of people that say, well, I'm just being honest. And actually, they're just being mean. So I don't right. I'm not espousing that. But I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, tell the truth and be honest about who you are. And what my wife and I had, we, we never have arguments. Uh, and mm -hmm. people, when, I, when, when they hear me say that, they're like, that can't be true. But it is true. And the reason it's true is before we got married, I sat down and had a very serious, you know, two hour conversation with my wife and saying, I want to make, you know, I want us to, to spend our life together. This is what I think marriage is. This is what I think it means. These are the things that I hold sacred. Um, if you don't feel the same way about some of these things, it's not going to work out. So we need to know that now. And, you know, it, it was just a saying, you know, these are, I mean, if you, if, if I love Star Trek and you want to watch Sex in the City, that's something we can get over. Um, right. But, but, but if, if I'm someone that has a heart for service and you don't, that's going to be a problem. Mm. Um, and I've got, I've got a, a friend who, who had a marriage didn't work out because he wanted to be, he had, he had a heart for service and he wanted to dedicate his life to helping other people. So he spent a lot of time doing that. And rather than you know, his spouse being engaged with him in that process, they wanted to go off and do something different. And that's cool if both of you are okay with that, but they weren't both okay with it. So that honesty comes back to play. You just need to be honest about who you are and what works for you. And I'm not a big fan of judging other people. I am mm -hmm. a big fan of judging myself. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm okay with saying, this is what works for me. If it doesn't work for you, no harm, no foul, but this is what works for me. And it, to, for me to be happy, I have to abide by these principles. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's just, that's kind of how I feel about it. But I've always had that decisive and honest, you know, thing. And, and I, I think it really helps me, especially when I work with clients as a producer, as a recording engineer, as a session musician, uh, as, as a mentor, you know, I, I have to be able to be honest with them. And I tell them up front, it's like, look, I'm always going to give you my honest opinion. You don't have, if I tell you something, you can take it to the bank because I'm going to tell you what I believe and I'll stand behind what I believe. I will put it in writing. 
if 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 I give you a compliment, you can take it to the bank, and I'll tell anybody that that wants to know that I gave you that compliment. And I meant it. Um, and I will always tell you if I think you're wrong. And then at the end of the day, you're the boss. It's your career. If you want to ignore my educated opinion, that is your prerogative. And you are with well within your rights to do that. And sometimes I'm wrong. I can't, I mean, there are several times where I tell somebody, I think this is a bad idea. I think you're wasting your time and your money. And they go ahead and do it anyway. And then afterwards, I go, you know what? You were totally right. I was totally wrong. It worked. It, it made the difference. That I'm glad you stuck with your gut. So, you know, but that honestly, I think is a key component to being, um, to, to, to kind of circle back around to where we kind of started. It's, it's a key component to getting to know yourself and to live in a happy life. And, and, and it's, you know, it's a big part of who I am. And it's just part of what, just part of how I roll. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just me and I'm, 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 I'm me and nothing else <laughs> for, for, for good or ill. <laughs> I mean, that's no, that's, that's really great. And, uh, and, and, and I love that you put honesty as a part of that, um, knowing who you are, because it is, you have to be honest with yourself and, and you have to be part of being honest with yourself is knowing, uh, that there's certain parts of yourself that you will and won't like, and you know, that you can improve that and that, you know, you can always get better if you want to, you know, and if you want to, you know, but that's, it's all up to you and, and, you know, and who you want to be and in who you want to become. Um, but I want to get to something that, uh, jumped out at me when I first, I don't remember what it was that I read about you, what it was, if it was a bio or something online, I don't know. But the question that I've been wondering is how did you become the music ambassador of your city of Macon? Oh, that's a great question. So, um, one of my key, I guess I'll say attributes, um, is that I don't complain about something if I'm not willing to fix it. Ah. And so, so I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, sit around and moan about something and not be willing to get out and do the work and make it better. So I think if you want to complain about something, that's, Hey, that's fine. But if you're not willing to help make a difference so that you, that problem stops being a problem, then I don't really want to hear it. Um, so <laughs> I have been a, huge advocate trying to build the musical infrastructure of my town back in the late 60s and throughout the 70s we were the mecca of southern rock music and um and then that infrastructure for a lot of different reasons i won't bore you with uh disappeared and macon still has an amazing amount of talent and an amazing amount of soul uh, it's still a really vibrant, artistic place. But for whatever reason, there wasn't really any leadership, um, you know, making, you know, helping to make things happen. Uh, and so I, I said, well, if I don't like the way things are, then I need to get out and change that. So I just started making those changes. And some of those changes were uh, just, just to enumerate a few. I started a local radio show where only local artists were featured. Um, that was an uphill fight because a lot of the, the, the terrestrial radio stations, terrestrial meaning AM, FM stations, didn't see a value in that community service. I think of it as community service. I think of it as, okay, you may have half an hour or an hour of time that you're not selling ads um, with the big guys, but 
you're doing a community service. And I think in today's modern age with on-demand programming, that radio stations really better wake up and get back to being the heart of their community because without them, they're, they're going to lose, they're going to lose the necessity um, because I can watch or listen to anything I want on demand anywhere I'm at all over the country, all over the world. I don't have to be tuned into 97.3 or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, so I, I have always fought and advocated for radio stations taking an interest in the community. And uh, so we, I, I worked on it. I started providing a program to several different radio stations that, uh, here in town where, where local artists could be featured. I did all that at no charge. I wasn't trying to make money. I just trying to make things better. Um, I also started offering songwriting music business workshops at one of the local music stores at one of the big box electronic stores in town. Cause they had a really nice uh, area in the back with a bunch of TVs. We started having little acoustic concerts where bands could come in and play acoustically for a really uh, nice um, at, a, at a nice place where people were having coffee and pastries and stuff like that. Um, it's before Starbucks and before Barnes and Noble and stuff like that happened. This is all in the nineties. Um, so I was doing all these things and then I was, you know, leaving my mark uh, on music. Uh, I was, I'd been opening for Ted Nugent and bad company and doing some different things like that and, and play into some, some, you know, some arenas and stuff like that. Uh, and so I was just out promoting my hometown cause I love it. And so in 2006, the mayor and city council recognized that in a more, um, you know, uh, substantial way by saying, we want you to be our official music ambassador and we want to give you the support of the city um, and, and, and let people know that you are truly an ambassador for our, our ethics, our artistic integrity, our music, and that sort of thing. So that's how it happened. The mayor and city council in 2006 said, hey, we want to we want to put, you know, bestow you with this honor. I mean, it is primarily an honorary title, but I take it very seriously. And wherever I go, um, you know, I talk about my hometown and I try to leave a little piece of it with people uh, when I'm gone. Sometimes that's through my music or through my T-shirts or whatever. But I also have um, the official Joey Stucky Kazoo that I give away various different times. And the reason for that is that Macon is one of the two or three places in the U.S. that claims to be the birthplace of the kazoo. Now, I am not <laughs> going to—I am not going to definitively tell you which one of them is right because I don't know. But uh, I will tell you that a lot of famous people, including like Gene Simmons of Kiss and uh, Charlie Daniels and all the guys from Spiragyra and all the guys from the band Yes, they all have Joey Stucky kazoos in honor of Macon, Georgia. So. I have left them with lots of little, lots of people from, from kids that I do inspirational talks to, to celebrities. And it's just a way to remind them that there's, there's a place out here that's a real incubator for music where, where art and music is really valued. And I think any true society that is worth being part of has a vibrant arts community because as artists, we act as historians and philosophers, and we hopefully accelerate people into new ways of thinking you know, the history and, and other things that we need to remember. So I'm, I'm real big on it. So that's kind of how it all happened. So it sounds like you're really uh, committed to like a literal scene change. Like you're literally committed to changing the music scene and, and to making it um, into something, you know, into a place where well, it, music is something that you love and yeah. you want to 
you know, you wanted to make changes so that it could, I guess, continue to be that. Like, is it, I guess what I'm asking is why did you, what motivated you to want to make those changes? Uh, I know that you saw well, things that you wanted different, but what motivated you to, to make those changes? Yes. Yeah, so? so, so, I mean, we had all this talent, including, you know, what I thought of as my talent, uh, but also all my friends and, and all, all the people I work with and clients of mine from the studio had all this amazing music, but nobody was, was, you know, there was no, there was a vacuum. Nobody was listening. Um, so we needed to find ways to make, make that change. So I, I did that in a couple different ways. I wrote for a couple of the local papers about bands in the area and, and, you know, talked about them that way. I had the radio show and talked about them that way. Um, you know, a couple, I guess about six, seven years ago, I had a, 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 a music show on the, the local NBC station here in town. So I did a TV show and, and that all came about because I was really sort of frustrated with the fact that I was asked to play on TV a lot, but the TV stations weren't really set up to handle audio and the sound quality was really poor. So we did a great job, but the sound quality was, was really poor and really was embarrassing. And I said, well, I can fix that. And so I, I came, I talked to a couple of TV stations and the, the NBC affiliate here in town was the one that we worked out, um, you know, something with. And I said, look, you guys have the lights and the cameras. I'm blind. It's stupid for me to even talk about using cameras and lights. I mean, I'm not, that's not what I do. Uh, that, that's clearly not where my expertise lies. But you guys got the lights and the camera and I have the recording studio. So once a month, you come over to the recording studio for three or four hours and we will film enough bands um, to feature one a week on Friday morning. And, uh, and, and then we can do a repeat, you know, later on the day or whatever. And we'll, we'll do interviews and music and we'll, we'll, we'll do it in the studio so that it sounds amazing. And then you, you'll bring the, 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 the quality of your video and, and lighting and all that stuff. And that's what we did. So I've, I've done a lot of stuff like that. Then my, the second thing I'm real passionate about. So, Number one, you have to have a platform so people can hear you. But number two, you have to educate yourself in the business of music. There's that pesky word, business. But if you want to make a living doing what you love, you got to have the business side. So I started educating not only myself, but my fellow musicians and people here in town uh, about the business side. You know, how do you write a great song? How do you record a good song? How do you, what, what, what are some you know, how do you represent your, your craft on your taxes? Should you form a corporation? Uh, how do you do a copyright? You know, all these things. So my goal has always been building infrastructure. I am for, I don't, I don't worry about other recording studios. I say, look, there's room for as many as we can sustain. I can't record everybody in town. I mean, I'm, I'm glad for a new studio to open up here in town. That just means that what we're doing is working because there's that infrastructure. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't worry about the pie is only so big. If you get a piece and that means my piece is smaller. I don't, I don't think like that. I know people that do, and it makes me kind of sad, but, uh, no, I'm, I'm all about promoting infrastructure so that the arts can grow and stay here. What I, what I don't want, what I hate to see happen is for a great artist. And I know several of them, uh, you have a great artist who's super talented but they feel like they have to move to Nashville or New York or LA or, or somewhere like that to have a career. And uh, really with the way things are now, by and large, that's not true anymore. I'd say it's about 70% not true. There's, there are a few jobs 
that you really have to be in LA or Nashville or New York to do. There's a few of them, but by and large, you can spend most of your time in your hometown. You can give back to your hometown. You can help grow your hometown um, and, and all that kind of stuff and not have to live, you know, somewhere else if you don't, if you don't want to. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm dedicated to is that idea of growing the infrastructure. Cause when you look at Macon, Georgia, you look at Nashville, Tennessee, you look at New York city, you look at Los Angeles, you look at London, the, the things that separate them from Macon is really just infrastructure. So, you know, it, it's, it's just, there's, you have to have, you know, you have to have a way for the arts to be created so you got to nurture the creative process then you got to figure out how to, to distribute the artistic creations so you got to have a, a you know that distribution chain um and that distribution chain can be record stores that are that are you know locally owned or independently owned it can be clubs it can be you know it can be all kinds of different things so i know you said that people don't have to uh leave their hometown to do music anymore um, are there any changes that you do feel need to be made to, uh, say the music industry or, uh, local, uh, the local music scene, you know, in, in your town, in your area to make it more accessible or more adaptive or more welcoming or anything along those lines? Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's it's kind of a funny story. Um, I was I'm not going to name the the organization, um, but I was part of a diversity and inclusion committee for a, a, a pretty big um, outfit here in here in our state. It wasn't for making; it was statewide, and. Um, a lot of really big players were part of this diversity inclusion board. And um, what was fascinating, they had, they had a, a tool called diversity inclusion wheel. But the interesting thing about that tool, well, there was nothing about disabilities. And I waited for about three months without saying anything, waiting to see if that was going to change. And it did not. And so finally I said to them, I said, my friends, you know, I've been on this committee now for about four months. We've had a meeting in my studio. Um, we, you know, I've come to all the meetings and, and I've, we've talked about all these things we can do to make sure that everyone is included, everyone is valued, everyone has an opportunity to, to succeed. And it is, it has been too long in coming for, for females and for people that are LGBTQ and for people that are African-American. I mean, all these things are important and I'm excited about the progress we're making. There's still a lot of work left to do, but I do find it a bit interesting that for four months, you've been sitting across from a blind man at a table here. And we still aren't talking about disabilities. And, you know, I don't want to talk about how, what a vibrant workforce there is in the disabled community or the disabled market. I don't want to talk about that because talk is cheap. I want to show it. I want to prove it. And we need to organize events that allow us to do that. Um, so 
there's a lot of work still to be done just to get disabilities on the radar. Um, in the music business in particular, the, the real fight and the thing that I find kind of ironic is that music is about sound. It's about your ears. You would think that the music industry would be the most accessible place for a blind person to be. But in fact, we have, with the technology, we have gone so much to graphical representations of things that it is very, very difficult to stay accessible and to stay competitive with your sighted counterparts because everything is computer-based. And not only is it computer-based, but it's graphical interfaces. And so you're actually clicking a knob with your mouse and turning the knob because they're trying to emulate the hardware stuff on your screen. You know, and, and, and so I am disappointed in that. But as I said earlier, I don't, I don't complain about stuff. I help make change. So I'm working really hard with a number of other blind folk um, and sighted folk as well to help corporations understand that there's not only it's not only the right thing to do from a moral perspective, but it's a good business decision to make sure that you tap into the blind market because everyone, regardless of their physical ability or lack thereof, should have the opportunity to experience music. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to necessarily be able to play it. That doesn't mean you're going to necessarily be able to make it into a living, but you should be able to at least experience it. And, you know, the great, percussionist Evelyn Glennie, who's deaf, plays barefoot and plays a, a percussion, you know, plays like vibraphones and, and marimbas and all these things. So I know that music can be accessible for everyone. And it's such a powerful language that it can be understood. I can listen to French music and not understand the words and still be moved. So it's a powerful language that really is open to everyone, even the hearing impaired, they can experience it through vibration. Um, is it the same thing as the way I experienced it? No, but it doesn't mean that it's not important or it's not valid. So I am really into accessibility. And the big thing about that is we wanna make sure that people think about accessibility from the ground up, that they're, they're, they're making it a part of their product rather than trying to retrofit a product. So I don't wanna know about the current version of your software being accessible. I'm not worried about that. Let's look at the future version that you're going to bring to market. You know, it takes about two years to bring a new product to market. And by the time you start selling it, and it has a limited lifespan. So I'm not asking companies, I'm a small business. So I'm not asking them to do anything that I wouldn't do. I'm not asking them to spend a lot of money retrofitting something that's not even going to be on the market that much longer. What I am asking is that they take accessibility into consideration from the ground up of their design. And if they do that, I believe, and I think that I can prove that it's very affordable and that they will at least recoup their expenses of making it accessible through the blind market because there is one. So anyway, yeah, I mean, there, you know, that there's some, there are some challenges of that. I also spent some time in a wheelchair um, my, I had something called a vascular necrosis, which is a latent bone issue that happened from the brain tumor. I lost my right hip to that. So I have a metal hip and then I also have a metal shoulder. And, um, so I spent some time in a wheelchair and I worry about 
music venues and public spaces and private spaces being accessible so that you can have dignity in a wheelchair um, and, and that you can go to the restroom and you can get in and out of the venue, you know, uh, with the same dignity that everybody else gets to, to go in and out with. Um, and when I tour and travel, there are issues being blind at the airport. Um, it's interesting that I, I try to, you know, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't really know how better to explain the, what blind is, except to say that I can't see. I don't really know how to make it any more simple. And honestly, what happens most of the time when I express the fact that I can't see uh, and I'm trying to go through the line, they motion for me with bigger gestures. And then my wife sort of has to laugh and go, no, no, you know, he can't see that. Um, and because I have metal parts, I have to go through the, uh, you might be a dangerous person line. Um, and, Cause I set all the metal detectors off. So it's a real thrill. And, and like there, there have been some times that I have been um, singled out the airport and people have been really rude. I'm talking about TSA people have been really rude um, to me. Um, and, and so I think we need to work on that. So that's, that to me is all part of music infrastructure travel. Um, so there's a lot of stuff like that, but you know, I'm hopeful. Um, it's, it's, uh, parts of the accessibility world are better than they used to be when I was a kid. Parts of it's worse. Uh, but regardless, if enough people talk about it and enough people, um, work on it and believe that it's important, I know we can do great things. I totally agree. And actually that's why I asked you that question. Um, you know, like I, I'm, I'm a fan of your, your motto and your philosophy of, uh, you know, not complaining about things and instead just changing them. Um, and I, and I think that one way to start changing it is to raise awareness about it and let people know, uh, what's going on. And also, um, not only the people in power, but other, you know, other blind people, other blind artists who are saying, oh, you know what? I haven't even thought about that before. And then they can use their platforms to raise awareness about the same issues that you're raising awareness about, you know, and just re reaching, you know, several different audiences. I think that's one of the most important um, ways to start change and to spark it is to uh, start the conversations and let people know what's going on and really raise awareness. So, yeah. And I mean, the thing is, you know, I, I do understand the frustration. I have mm -hmm. several blind people that I talk to and they're just so upset and so frustrated because they know that they have the ability to do great things in music and they feel like they're being left out and they feel like they're not being thought about. And to a certain degree, that's true. But the thing is, while I understand the anger and I'm not saying, look, if I was happy all the time, I'm a generally happy person, but if I was happy all the time, something would be, you should be worried. Something, something would be wrong with me. It's okay to say, I don't like this. It's okay to say, I'm not happy about this. It's okay to say, I'm frustrated with this, but it's not okay to stay there because you need to move from that frustration into action. And so the, the best way to get the positive results that we want is to be, always be pleasant, to always be patient, to always try and understand the other person's perspective. And I think primarily most of the accessibility issues we come that that we deal with come from a, just a lack of understanding the need and not a desire you know not like some sort of resistance to help so i, I think that's where it mostly comes from i mean there are some people that are like oh well you know too bad for you but that's not the majority yeah i totally understand that um i think that recognizing uh what's going on is you know that that's the first step to it um 
to to addressing the issues. So I I appreciate the work that you're doing. I, I definitely think it's um it's it's gonna make the right impact is going to make the impact that we need to see um, as things move forward, because I think you are correct. I don't think that people are intentionally leaving people out. Um, it's just that they don't know. It's, it's a, it's a lack of awareness. So if we were to raise awareness, just like we're doing here on the show, I think that's, you know, that's the, that's one of the first steps and that's um, going to definitely put us on the right track. But listen, I have just one. Okay, so, so I have, about a million more questions for you, but I think we're going to have to have you back on the show. Um, and I'm foreseeing, I'm foreseeing quite a panel, um, possibly with you and another music blind music tech teacher, uh, who are a professor, sorry, excuse me. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I think you guys would be a good pairing, uh, for, for a panel, but if not, I, I'm seeing a, a couple of other ideas uh, for you to definitely come back and, and join us again. But uh, last, the last thing that I want to leave our audience with is, do you have any sort of uh, resources, websites, uh, Twitter, anything where people can go to learn more um, about you, about the causes that you're working toward, just whatever you want to share so that people can learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first, let me just say I'm always at your service. So if you know any, anything you want to do, I'm 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 up for it. So uh, I'm I'm happy to come back and talk anytime. As you can tell, I, I run my mouth quite easily. Um, <laughs> I was actually I was actually dubbed. And I'm proud of this moniker. Uh, a friend of mine, Scott Travis, is the drummer for Judas Priest and for Thin Lizzy, and he has dubbed me the mouth of the South. And ah. I, <laughs> I, I accept that title with pride. Um, but yeah, the, the best place to find me um, and to sort of get in line with the Stuckyverse is at joeystuckey.com. So that's J-O-E-Y-S-T-U-C-K-E-Y.com. That's a real catch-all website that has studio stuff and music stuff and articles and all kinds of stuff like that. There's also my, my recording studio, if you're interested in that. The website's a little out of date. We're going to uh, revamp it totally this summer, uh, but it's called Shadow Sound Studio, and that's just all spelled together. Um, so shadowsoundstudio.com. I am on Twitter and Instagram, um, it's, and my uh, handle there is at the letter J Stucky Music. So at J Stucky Music. Um, I post a pretty good bit on Twitter. I don't do as much on Instagram on a regular basis, primarily because it's such a visual medium. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 you know, if I'm take if I'm going to do pictures, I tend to have somebody else take those. <laughs> there was, there was a time that I was doing just for fun because I was bored. I just started taking pictures of stuff and say, okay, what is this? I don't know. I just took a picture. <laughs> you guys tell me what it is. So we called it blind guy snaps. And uh, we did that for a while. And it was, it was actually kind of popular for a bit there, but I, we need to get back to doing that. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. So it's facebook.com slash Joey Stuckey for my personal page or facebook.com slash Joey Stuckey music for the music fan page. Um, and then I've got a YouTube channel. The YouTube channel, I have a, a record label that I publish my own music on and a few of my friends I've, I've put on there. Uh, but uh, the record label is called Senate, um, as in like the Congress. So Senate Records. Um, you can find my YouTube channel under that. But if you go into YouTube and search my name, you'll find a, a ton of content. Um, everything from stupid videos of me at baseball games uh, to, uh, you know, live performances to uh, interviews on different news organizations. I mean, there's just there's probably 
I don't know, there's probably 1,500 videos up uh, of varying quality. Some are just cell phones, some are professionally produced. Um, and I actually do have an audio-described video for Blind Man Driving, if you're interested in that. Um, that's cool. So that's, yeah, that's out there. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a funny video, I think. And I really think that if, if you, uh, you know, un unfortunately, I don't think the audio description is, is, is as funny as the video. I think there's some things that just don't translate. Uh, mm -hmm. but it's, it's still probably worth watching. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of fun content there. My, my most popular, uh, video that has, I think 200,000 views is a 24 second video of me showing you the Johnny cash dollar bill guitar technique. And I'm not going to say anything else about it. You're going to have to go look <laughs> at it. If you want to know, if you want to know what that is, you'll have to look at it on YouTube. Oh my goodness. Well, let me tell you something, Joey, you are just a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> I think that our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. Thank you for joining us today. My friend, it is my total pleasure. I'm so glad to meet you and I'm glad to be part of anything that you're doing. And I'm just so excited to speak to other people who are facing, you know, not the exact same journey that I'm going through, but something similar. If I can be any kind of inspiration or, or source of knowledge, that is a job that I am so proud to take on. Well, you certainly have been an inspiration for us today. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. A uh, huge shout out to Chris, um, who is hosting us over Zoom and doing, um, you know, helping us out with production. Uh, shout out to Shane, because he will be the final editor of the show. And thank you to the entire podcast team, our listeners, and of course, to Joey Stuckey. This has been another episode of Scene Change. Thank you. I'm Caitlin McIntyre, president of the National Federation of the Blind Performing Arts Division. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Scene Change. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website at nfb-pad.org. There you'll find links to our social media, membership, and resources for blind performers. Thanks to everyone who makes this show happen. Scene Change is produced by Shane Lowe, Chris Nussbaum, Seyun Choi, and Precious Perez, with music by Ryan Strunk and Tom Page. Remember, you can be the performer you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. We'll see you next time.